2 Kings chapter 17, verses 14 to 21 is our text. This is God's inspired and infallible word. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuthah and from Avah and from Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded them, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them, how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. So the men of Babylon made Sukoth Benot, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashimah, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephirvarim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them, in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day, they do according to earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or their law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice 
the nations and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever, and you shall not fear other gods. The covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God, you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they did according to their earlier custom. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols and their children likewise and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. The reading of God's holy word, be seated please, and let's pray together. Lord, our God, we believe that you have inspired all of Scripture, that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We pray now that you would equip us by the Holy Spirit working in and through us and in and through your word to grant that we might be trained to walk in the way of righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. During the last semester of my senior year in college, I attended a job fair in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Job fairs are typically designed uh, for upcoming graduates from colleges or trade schools, representatives from various companies are on hand to speak with prospects about employment opportunities. The choices are many, limited only by the companies represented and available positions. It's a cafeteria of prospective employers. That's something, something like the state of affairs in Samaria, after the Israelites had been carried off into captivity in Assyria. The influx of transplants under Assyrian relocation brought their own religious traditions, their own preferences to their respective new cities. It was a religion fair, a cafeteria of devotional possibilities. Residents had a choice between uh, worshiping the Babylonian god, Sekoth Benot, Nergal with the people of Kuth, uh, verse 30, or practicing child sacrifice to Adramelech or Anamelech with residents from Sepharvayim, verse 31, just to name a few. From that job fair in Oklahoma City, I snagged two interviews from the same company in two different cities in Texas, one of which led to a job offer and a seven-year career in electrical engineering with that company. 
my experience with the job fair wasn't only positive, it was providential because my wife was pregnant with our first child and I had no visible means of supporting my family. And so God was good to us and providentially su supplied uh, the job that I desperately needed to support them. Nothing even remotely positive came from the religion fair, from the cafeteria of religion in Samaria. We won't discuss the various cults that arose in Samaria because there's not enough data for that, but we, we can discern certain types of religion in our text, and it uh, will be profitable for us to work our way through these various types of religion. We'll look at three of those types. In the first place, coping religion. Secondly, creative religion. And thirdly, covenant religion. Coping, creative, and covenant religion. First, we have in our text what we might call coping religion or pragmatic religion. New residents came to Samaria from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sefer Vayim, verse 24. We know where Babylon is, that's in Assyria, but the location of the rest of these cities is uncertain. Since the new residents came from various locations, it's possible that the deportations listed in 2 Kings 17.24 resulted from several Assyrian campaigns during the reign of more than one of Assyria's kings. Verse 24 would then summarize several waves of Assyrian settlements in Samaria. In any case, now the kingdom formerly known as Israel is populated largely with pagans. They know nothing of Jehovah and his ways and nothing of the religious devotion that he requires. And that becomes a problem for them. At first, those resettled in Samaria did not fear Jehovah, verse 25 says. So Jehovah's, uh, Jehovah set lions among them, which killed some of them. The message that the settlers uh, sent to the king of Assyria reports the lion problem and proposes that the reason is the, that these exiled ones do not know the custom of the land, verse 26. The word custom in the version that I read and preach from, translated a custom, uh, is translated in other English uh, versions as manner, rituals, law, or a requirement. The Hebrew can also mean judgment or justice. So it's clear, even by the way that uh, these different English translations translate this word, uh, that the context determines how this word 
ought to be translated. Here it seems to refer to the rituals, the religious rituals, the ordinances by which Jehovah was to be worshipped. Given that in verse 27, the king of Assyria directs them to have one of the exiled priests go back and instruct the people in Jehovah's rites or his ordinances of worship. The irony is thick in this text. First, the newly settled nations behave more correctly than their predecessors did in the land. At least these pagans are concerned to pacify Jehovah, which is more than, than could be said for Israel, who in verses 7 to 17, here in chapter 17, refused to see the warning signs and to heed the warnings that God sent to them through the prophets. Second, the priest who came to enlighten these pagans settles in Bethel. Verse, uh, verse 28, one of the original, original sites, remember, where Jeroboam instituted golden calf worship. 1 Kings 12, verses 25 of, uh, 21 to 23. Did this indicate his preference for Jeroboam liturgy, for golden calf? Worship. Whatever the case, any priest from the northern kingdom would likely promote more syncretism than orthodoxy in worship, whether of the golden calf cult or uh, the Baal variety of idol worship. The lion scourge could have been a good thing. It could have proven to be an initial opportunity for these settlers to turn to Jehovah. Fat chance of that when their evangelist is a former priest of the northern tribe of Israel. What's clear from this account is that getting rid of the lions was the most important thing to the settlers and uh, if some recognition of Jehovah secures that for them, then that's all that matters. That's what religion ought to do, according to some, to help people cope with the troubles and tensions of life. This sort of religion is primarily pragmatic and can therefore be crassly manipulative. Something must be done to get rid of the, the lions, so uh, some crave a protective faith that charms away troubles, that deals with one's threats. The big question isn't, is it true? But will it work? to avoid discomfort, to ward off disaster. This commonly manifests itself in our day when people call around to 
area churches asking for help to pay their utility bill or to provide food and or shelter. Sometimes these needs are legitimate, but more times than not, these requests are manifestations of this perception of religion as a means to help me cope, as pragmatic, that's what the church is there for. In the wake of terrorist attacks like 9-11 or more recently in Israel comes the question, where was God? There's nothing wrong with asking that question. Christian, Christians know where God was when the terrorists struck the two towers in New York City. He was on his throne. He was ruling. That's where God was. So nothing at all wrong with the question, but sometimes there's a false assumption behind it, namely that God is always supposed to make life safe. He's always supposed to come to the rescue of the helpless, that God is my existential pacifier. If he doesn't guarantee my security, of what use is he? Religion should get rid of the lions for you. That's what it's for. That's coping religion. Secondly, uh, we see creative religion in our text. Uh, the new residents wasted no time in installing their own gods and worship centers. Verses 29 to 31. The operative word in these verses is the damning little verb made. The writer uses it six times in verses 29 to 31 to describe the making of God. It's a very common word in the Hebrew Old Testament, meaning to do or to make. It's used over 2,600 times. So we wouldn't think too much of it except when the writer piles it up as he does here. It makes us suspect that he's being sarcastic. They made, they made, they made. That's a pagan, do-it-yourself religion. This is the very same biblical sarcasm that we saw in 1 Kings 12, verses 31 to 33, where the writer describes the inauguration of Jeroboam's golden calf worship using the word make eight times in three verses in order to mark the stupidity of such religious innovation. The original residents of Samaria, the Israelites, had created the infrastructure for the settlers' creativity with some creativity of their own. Verse 29, they had made the high places 
that the new residents now used. Like King Jeroboam, the new residents appointed from among themselves representatives of their gods, verse 32, priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. So here's creative religion. Religion is what you like to make of it. Religion is what you create. And it can be so comprehensive and ecumenical. You can both worship Jehovah and serve your own favorite gods. Verse 33. You can make it as you like. Charles Colson tells of a conversation he had with a neighbor. She was so excited about her church. And Colson tried to point out graciously that the church was a cult that believed neither in the resurrection nor the deity of Jesus Christ. But the woman was unmoved. She simply replied, Oh, but the services are so wonderful. I always feel so good after I've been there. What's true takes second place to what I enjoy. What I like rules in creative religion. So pagan religion creates what it likes. Biblical faith receives what's revealed. Pagans base worship on what they prefer. Biblicists must worship based on what God declares. The biblical worshiper must submit. The pagan worshiper innovates. And when pagan worship mixes with true religion, the result is creative religion. We've seen coping religion Creative religion, thirdly, covenant religion, in verses 34 to 41. Verse 34 stands in direct contradiction to verse 33. In verse 33, the imported residents are said to fear Jehovah and serve their own gods, while verse 34 denies this. They do not fear the Lord nor are they living in line with the statutes, ordinances, laws, and commandments Jehovah had directed Israel to keep. If we don't recognize that in verses 25 to 33, there is a dripping irony, we'll miss the point that the inspired narrator is making here. It's not a passage meant to be taken at face value. The sense of the passage is best understood if the reader mentally applies quotation marks to the words worship and feared in verses 28, 32, and 33. We're not to regard the worship described in these verses as true worship, which becomes clear in verses 34 through 39. Once we understand the writer's irony, it becomes apparent that in verse 33, he has has tongue-in-cheek when he says they fear the Lord and serve their own gods. 
Then he says it in plain prose in verse 34. They do not fear Jehovah. At the end of verse 34, the writer refers to what Jehovah had commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel. And in verses 35 to 39, he takes us back to the time of the Exodus, rehearsing in second-person address the terms of Jehovah's covenant. Jehovah made a covenant and commanded them. Note how stringently the covenant insists on exclusive devotion to Jehovah. Verse 35 contains three negative verbal clauses. Israel must not bow down, not serve, nor sacrifice to other gods. Verses 36 and 37 invert normal grammar and put the direct object or indirect, uh, indirect objects first in, the cla- in these clauses for emphasis. Jehovah who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with outstretched arm. Him you shall fear, and him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice. The statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever. The same emphasis carries over into verse 38. The covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget unless we miss the point the writer hammers it into us four times negatively in verses 35 37 and 38 you shall not fear other gods and then positively in verse 39 but jehovah your god you shall fear covenant religion is an exclusive religion. It's intolerant to any other sort of God. You must fear and bow down and sacrifice to Jehovah and no other. Our passage proclaims to us as it outlines for us what covenant religion is all about. Verse 40 apparently recalls the northern kingdom of Israel's response to the covenant stipulations of verses 35 to 39, to fear and bow down and sacrifice to Jehovah. However, they did not listen, but they did according to their earlier custom. Verse 41 then comes back to the nations who had been resettled in Samaria. So while these nations feared Jehovah, they also served their idols and their children likewise and their grandchildren as their fathers did. So they do to this day. We have seen this before. The bondage of idolatry the practice of idolatry that is passed on from generation to the next and to the next and to the next four generations described here in verse 41. 
One generation embraces falsehood and dooms their descendants unless God graciously interrupts this damning behavior. Verse 41 breathes such an air of hopelessness. Succeeding generations following after the commitments of the former ones. Religion isn't necessarily a, necessarily a good thing. There's such a thing as condemning religion. There's such a thing as a religion that damns our text is teaching us. Bleak is the word for 2 Kings chapter 17. But religion isn't necessarily a bad thing either. Away with this idea espoused by various evangelical authors in our day and mindlessly repeated by others that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Christianity is nothing if not a religion. There is such a thing as true religion. That's covenant Religion. James writes about true religion in the first chapter of his epistle. As bleak as 2 Kings 17 is, there's a minuscule ray of hope for Israel in the last clause of verse 39. And he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. But that hope is dependent on the first clause of verse 39, whether they fear Jehovah, the God of covenant religion, worshiping and serving him exclusively. This part of 2 Kings surely touched a nerve with its original readers. They were in captivity because they had committed the very same sin as those who had replaced them in the land. They had ignored the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 23. They'd also ignored the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol, you shall not bow down to them and worship them, Exodus 24. They had assured of themselves, that it was possible to have it both ways, to worship Jehovah and their idols, but their captivity proved how dreadfully they had miscalculated. When people read or heard Second Kings in the time of Christ, The writers to this day comment in chapter 17, verse 41, remained relevant. Centuries later, the Samaritans still considered themselves God-fearing people, but they combined aspects of the biblical faith with the idolatrous practices of other nations. 
Jesus, uh, you remember, addressed this head on in his conversation with a woman at the well in Samaria near a little town called Sukkar, recorded in John chapter 4. During the course of the conversation, the Samaritan woman uh, could tell from the discoveries uh, Jesus revealed about her uh, that he was a prophet with a profound spiritual insight. So she posed the question that in those days lay at the heart of the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. John 4, verse 20. In his reply, Jesus didn't pull any punches. The Samaritans, he said, had it all wrong. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But remember that the Lord also looked beyond the present conflict to see what God had in store for his kingdom, a future full of grace to anyone who truly comes to God by faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is from the Jews. Woman, he said, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks as his worshipers. This probing interaction that Jesus had with the woman at the well, a, a, a conversation that struck this woman to her very core, to the very core of her being, is how Jesus began to fulfill God's plan for the salvation of the Samaritans. The bleak report of Israel's exile to Assyria in 2 Kings 17, as it turns out, wasn't the end. Even the resettlement of Samaria with pagans turned out to be part of God's long-term redemptive strategy. By his grace, the Samaritans were exposed to enough true religion to prepare them for the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. And their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures led them to be looking for the coming of Messiah. So when Jesus came to Sychar, the poor woman at the well knew the right questions to ask as Many Samaritans did. They were prepared to receive the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, and many did after this woman bore testimony of her encounter with the Messiah. 
what was true in Israel's day before the exile to Assyria, during the resettlement time in Samaria, and in Christ's day is true of us today. The Father still seeks those who will worship him and him alone in spirit and in truth. In spirit, meaning from the heart, from a heart engaged with God, communing with God in our worship, and in truth, according to God's commandments the ordinances that he has set forth for us in Scripture. Many churches today are guilty of practicing cafeteria religion. What's true takes second place to what I enjoy. What I like rules. Many these days regard such matters as nothing more than splitting hairs. They love imprecision in religion, while God loves precision. He's not happy with anything and everything that goes under the name of religion. Like it or not, It's possible to be wrong in religion, so wrong that we can even end up in eternal destruction. Let us be on guard then against the temptation to synthesize true religion with its true worship of God with anything else, lest we fall under the disfavor of our God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the covenant. And we thank you for true religion, covenant religion. We thank you that you've laid out this religion for us in your word. That you've laid out the the rites, the rituals, the precepts, your commandments, your statutes, the ordinances of worship. You've told us how you are to be worshipped. Help us, O Lord, to be on guard ourselves and never settle for anything that synthesizes idolatry with the true religion. Guard us, O Lord, by your almighty providence that we might not do so, that we never would do so. We ask, O God, that you would lead us in the way. And we ask, O Father, that you would remember the covenant that you've made with us and to our children. And we plead that covenant with you now. You have said, O Lord, that the promise is to us and to our offspring.
And we pray, O Lord, for those of our offspring who are not walking faithfully with you. We ask, O God, we plead with you before the throne of mercy. Have mercy on our children and their children and their children after them. That the covenant that you have made with us would survive many generations. Indeed, O Lord, a thousand generations. That our descendants would walk before you faithfully. We know that we don't do so perfectly. Help us in our striving to do so. And don't count our sins against us, O Lord. Our negligence of worship, our many failings as your people. But, O Lord, have mercy. Have mercy when we haven't been the parents that we ought to have been. None of us have. We've made errors in our parenting. We have not been faithful in many aspects of our, parent, our parenting. And yet, oh God, you are faithful. And you're the God of the covenant. And you're the God who's made these promises to us. And you wouldn't have put them there were they not meant for our pleading. And so hear us, oh God. As we cry out to you for the mercy of your covenant. In Christ's name, amen.